This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host nurse practitioner, Mimi Secor. The current national diabetes statistics are alarming and on the increase. Approximately 23.6 million children and adults in the United States are estimated to be diabetic, and that's a whopping 7.8% of the population. 57 million people are considered to possibly be pre-diabetic. Six million new cases of diabetes are diagnosed each year in adults. Gestational diabetes affects up to 14% of pregnancies in the United States and is a recognized risk factor for type 2 diabetes. With up to 60% of women with a history of gestational diabetes in pregnancy developing type 2 diabetes within 5 to 10 years postpartum. Diabetes continues to be the leading cause of kidney failure, non-traumatic lower extremity amputations, and blindness among adults. It's estimated to cost $174 billion a year for diabetes-related care. Increasingly, nurse practitioners are taking a more active role in the prevention, early diagnosis, and management of diabetes, especially under the new medical home concept of care. You're listening to ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, your host. And with me today is nurse practitioner Patty Dupree, who is the director and nurse practitioner at the Diabetes Center at Memorial Hospital in North Conway, New Hampshire. And we're discussing innovations in diabetes management and the role of nurse practitioners. Hello, Patty. Welcome to Reach MD. Well, thank you, Mimi. How are you? Good. So, as a nurse practitioner and diabetes expert, what do you think about the latest CDC statistics indicating we're in the midst of this burgeoning epidemic of diabetes, prediabetes? You're absolutely correct. It's very alarming. And when we look at the number of people with diabetes, I guess the first question that comes to mind is, who's going to care for these people moving into the future? I think that we need to be well aware of the fact that we need clinicians that are well-versed in diabetes. When we're talking about Pre-diabetes of 57 million people, the impact to the healthcare system and the economic burden. Yeah, these numbers are just mind-boggling. What are the new diagnostic, the national diagnostic guidelines? The last ADA guidelines, we have a change that probably some people aren't quite aware of yet. Now, in the past, I think probably everyone knows that it's two fasting blood sugars greater than 126, or you can have a random blood sugar greater than 200, if the person is having symptoms. And, of course, we've long been using the 75-gram glucose tolerance test to diagnose diabetes. But most recently, we now have a guideline that we can use if the A1C is greater than 6.5%. So that's the newest addition. The caution with that is we can't really be using the A1C as strictly diagnosis material because it's easier, because we're going to miss people because at diagnosis time, some people may have an A1C less than 6.5, but still meet those other criteria. Right. So you have to add that to the other criteria is what you're saying? Correct. Okay. And for especially many clinicians that are listening that have been doing their clinical work for many decades, what is the best terminology to use to refer to the different types of diabetes? I know I was raised on insulin versus non-insulin dependent terminology. Right. And we still hear that a lot, and that's very confusing for the patients because... They start out as, you know, what they thought was this non-insulin dependent, and then all of a sudden they receive insulin as a treatment. So they say to me, oh, well, when did I become, you know, insulin dependent? We changed the terminology so we could understand the pathophysiology. 
Now it's just considered type 1 diabetes, which is the autoimmune type of diabetes, and type 2 diabetes, which used to be called, you know, the adult onset diabetes. And we certainly know that it's not just for adults anymore. We have children and teenagers that are developing type 2 diabetes. And the other thing that we try to get away from is using the word, you know, diabetic. The person is not really a diabetic. It's a person with diabetes. So we call them PWD, person with diabetes. Can you describe the new national standards of care for persons with diabetes, the chronic diabetes care ABCs? Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, if anybody needs the current guidelines, the ADA website has the clinical practice recommendations right up on on site. You can easily download them. What's really up and coming is the ABCs. Everybody's been using those words now, and simply that just stands for A1C, which the ADA guideline is less than 7%, or they further classify it as the lowest possible A1C without hypoglycemia. Now, the ACE guideline is a little bit different. Their guideline is an A1C less than 6%. And when we talk about blood pressure, obviously the B in that ABC, we're looking at blood pressure less than 130 over 80. And cholesterol, there's been many changes over the years in terms of cholesterol management. But at the present time, the main goal is treating the LDL first. An LDL less than 100 for people with diabetes unless they have coronary artery disease. And in that case, we're looking at getting their LDL level down to less than 70 or 80. After we get to goal with the LDL, then we look at the HDL and the triglycerides. So that's the ABC of treatment. It sounds to me like getting to those lipid goals could be quite challenging with some of our patients. Oh, it's very challenging. And, you know, oftentimes what happens is before they've changed the goal to less than 70, you work with those patients and you know, you finally get them down to less than 90, and you have to look at them and say, oh, okay, guess what? Now we've got to work at getting at less than 70. As guidelines change, you know, you have to kind of look at your treatment plan. Which is really where your expertise comes in in educating our primary care listeners. So how does the nurse practitioner role fit into this, you know, chronic care model of the diabetic ABCs, Patty? Well, I personally think that the nurse practitioner is really in the perfect position to be the chronic care model in itself because self-management education along with medical treatment is really what MPs do best. So much of diabetes treatment is patient-driven, and I think that we as a group of um, healthcare providers spend more time with patients, and we certainly recognize you know, the individual health beliefs which may impact the person's ability to properly care for themselves. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with nurse practitioner Patty Dupree, director and nurse practitioner at the Diabetes Center in North Conway, New Hampshire. And we're discussing innovations in diabetes management and the role of nurse practitioners and other advanced practice clinicians. So as a certified diabetes educator, Patty, why is education so key to the successful management of diabetes? And how specifically do primary care clinicians need to kind of ramp it up in this area? I think to begin with, we all recognize that self-management skills are not inherent. They need to be learned and they need to be practiced. You know, diabetes is extremely overwhelming and people need support and tools to be able to self-manage. And utilizing that the team approach, you know, has proven very successful 
using the education classes, having the diabetes team in place, which may include, you know, physician, the NP, PA, diabetes educators, dietitians, pharmacists. The more people that you can involve in the diabetes team, the more successful that the person is going to be. Because once they leave the office, when they go home, they're making those everyday decisions on their own. And that's why they need that support system. Right. And you've created this model within diabetes care really early on for many years, correct? Yes. We started our diabetes center here approximately 10 years ago. And this is a rural area. And our center has grown to include a full-time diabetes educator. We have a part-time dietitian. We have myself as the nurse practitioner, an office nurse, and we have an endocrinologist who works one and a half days a week with us. How do you utilize self-glucose monitoring at this point in management? I think that it all goes back to looking at the person as an individual because that person with diabetes is going to help you know, drive the decision because it's what they're willing to do. We have to you know, look at why people are needing blood sugar monitoring. When you're looking at providing specific goals such as, you know, what fasting blood sugars are and what post-meal blood sugars are, we need to be looking at their blood sugar trends to recommend changes in treatment. But the patient on a daily basis is looking at those numbers to provide themselves with care for the day. And a frequent comment I hear from patients is that, you know, they spend hours recording all these blood sugars on these blood sugar logs and, you know, they come into the office and they show them to the provider and the provider just kind of puts them aside, doesn't really look at them, and neglects to make any treatment changes based on the readings. And I think that that sends a message to people that, you know, maybe the blood sugar numbers really weren't important. How often people monitor really depends on what their specific treatment plan is and what the patient is willing to do. If people are doing basal bolus and taking insulin, you know, prior to each meal, then obviously they're going to need to be checking, you know, more often. People with type 1 diabetes probably six to eight times a day. The people with type 2 diabetes probably don't need to be checking that often unless they're making specific changes on a daily basis. But you really need to look at what the patient wants out of the treatment plan and helping them to decide what's appropriate for them. And is this summarized in the ADA website? It certainly is. It's in the clinical practice guidelines, and it outlines, you know, all the different ways that you can have somebody check blood sugars. And it depends on what your treatment plan is. If you're giving them insulin, then you need to be checking more often. If you're giving them mixed insulins, you might check at different times than you would if you were giving them oral agents. So it's a partnership, I think, between the provider and the patient. Patty, when we're talking about the newest classes of oral diabetes agents, how would you place them in a context? I know a lot of clinicians in primary care are pretty overwhelmed with all the options. Oh, it's extremely overwhelming. And not only are the new drugs overwhelming, the whole healthcare system and our prescription plans are overwhelming. Everybody wants us to use all of the generic medicines. And the guideline from ADA is to begin with metformin. And I think we all know that. We've been using metformin you know, for a number of years now as baseline therapy. And it works very well. But what do you do after that? Exactly. Sulfonylureas are what insurance want you to use because, again, they're generics and they're cheap. Sometimes they work well, but the side effects of weight gain and hypoglycemia. And that's why these newer classes, the DPP-4 inhibitors, 
have been of really good benefit in terms of low side effect profile. Does that include the more of a neutral weight gain? Right, they, they are called well? weight neutral. The problem with the DPP-4s is that you really need to use them early on because the efficacy is only about 04 to 0.9% decrease in A1C. So if you have somebody that's up at 8 or 9%, adding on one of these DPP-4 inhibitors really isn't going to get them to goal. How about adding insulin? When do you make that decision, Patty? Well, there's a couple of, of ways that you can look at that. Up until a few years ago before the you know, GLP-1 analogs came out, we moved pretty quickly from the oral agents to the insulin. But now with Biator and Victoza, we now have kind of a, another option before we go to insulin because these drugs help to reduce hepatic glucose production. They slow absorption of glucose from the gut and also help to suppress appetite. These drugs are very expensive, however, and they're very difficult to use because the insurance, again, wants people to fail certain therapies. They have to use the step therapy to get there. Whereas we've been using, you know, insulin added to oral agents for a while, so insurance companies are more apt to be covering that without a prior authorization. And again, insulin is a really effective treatment, and the only side effect to the use of insulin is actually just hypoglycemia. I personally use a lot of insulin from the get-go, so when somebody mm-hmm. comes into the office with a new diagnosis of diabetes and has a very high blood sugar and high A1C, none of those oral agents are going to work at that point. So I give them insulin probably for four to six weeks. I start them on a, a basal insulin, add the metformin until the metformin can work, and then kind of wean them off the insulin. You think we should be doing this in primary care? and Using insulin early on serves two purposes. One, it certainly gets them to go much quicker than using oral agents and waiting, you know, six or nine months for them to get there. And it also removes the fear of insulin because people think that insulin is something bad. And we as providers, I think, kind of feed into that because how many times have we, you know, said to somebody, now, you know, Mrs. Smith, if you don't go home and lose weight, I'll be forced to start insulin on you. And that kind of gives a negative, you know, connotation to insulin when it's really a very effective drug. And the truth is, that most people with diabetes are going to have insulin at some point in their life. Oh, thank you, Patty, for being on the show today, for sharing your incredible expertise, for all you're doing for patients with diabetes. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Mimi. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.